Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called An Inevitable and Tragic Conflict, The Christian Gospel in America's Presidential Election. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 19th, 2012. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we read, David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. The American presidential election is just three months away. It's a good time to contrast our political illusions with biblical reality. While one essay can't nail down all the answers on such a complex issue, it can open up some important questions. The story of Solomon in its larger context in the six books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicle reveal an obvious point that lots of the Bible is profoundly political. This week's text describes the transition of power from David to Solomon. Further on, we read about Israel's role in the geopolitics of Assyria, Edom, Egypt, Moab, and Tyre. There are wars, alliances made by marriage, famines, conspiracies, assassinations, trade agreements, taxes, and foreign policy negotiations. We read about Solomon's two massive building projects, the temple at Jerusalem and his royal palace, both of which were built by slave labor conscripted from resident aliens, and of his incomparable wealth. <clears throat> Some of this material makes for boring reading with its use of government archives, bureaucratic invoices, and court records. This political narrative runs for 250 pages in my Bible, and covers 400 years, from Israel's first King David until its exile by Babylon in the year 586 BC. But if so much scripture is purely political, it isn't merely political. Embedded in this story is a theological critique of Israel's political history. <clears throat> Some people counsel the safety of silence when it comes to politics, but you could never make that case from the Bible. God's revelation of himself shows that he cares deeply about and somehow interacts with human politics, governments, and statecraft. In the New Testament, we encounter Jesus' announcement of an alternate reign or kingdom that's redolent with inherently political consequences. Jesus renounced violence and blessed peacemakers. He favored poor people and warned the rich. He embraced ethnic outsiders and infuriated smug insiders. He told us to love our enemies, not to kill them. He partied with moral failures and flaunted religious conventions. His mother Mary's birth announcement included an ominous prophecy directed at the authorities and powers. We read in Luke 1.52, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. 
And when Jesus was dragged to the Roman governor's palace at the end, he faced three political allegations in Luke 23:2. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. How should Christians think about the civil war in Syria, the consequences of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the belligerence of North Korea's missile tests, Hezbollah's insistence that it would destroy Israel if it could, or that most people in Africa live in dreadful poverty? The story of Solomon reminds us of what the French sociologist Jacques Ellul said in his book, The Politics of God and the Politics of Man. Ellul writes, The Bible shows us that the church is not just a spiritual matter, that politics is not just simply a human action of no concern to us. It may be that politics is the kingdom of the devil, but this certainly concerns us as Christians. Other Christians make the opposite mistake. Instead of avoidance and silence, they reduce the meaning of faith to partisan politics. Liberal Christians identify with Democrats and conservative believers with Republicans. A closer look at the Solomon story shows why both alliances are equally mistaken. We do read about Solomon's wisdom in his earnest prayer when he dedicated the temple but sincerity does not mean wisdom. His story ends with personal corruptions to pagan gods and goddesses, whose practices included child sacrifice, exorbitant taxes, and a royal harem of a thousand concubines. His son Rehoboam even bragged about how oppressive his subsequent government would be. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will make it still heavier my father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Rehoboam provoked a civil war that ripped the country apart and that only ended with defeat by the global powers Assyria and then Babylon. So the story of Solomon is tragic regarding political power. The larger biblical context is even more so. This tragedy begins with the origins of Israel's centralized political power in 1 Samuel 8. The people wanted a king, like the other nations. Samuel objected, went to God in prayer, and was rebuffed by the people's insistence. In longing for a king, Israel was not rejecting Samuel, but God himself. Samuel ceded to their requests, but warned them of the harsh consequences. The government would conscript their children for wars, make them domestic slaves, confiscate their land, impose exorbitant taxes. Israel's first king, Saul, did all this and more. And then the political panorama of first and second kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen in the 400 years from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon. Only two kings received unqualified approval by the narrator, Hezekiah and Josiah. Otherwise, with monotonous regularity, 
Over 30 times the narrator renders the ominous judgment that a king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Instead of the glorification of political power or nationalistic celebration, this 400-year history of politics is unremittingly negative, in keeping with the dire warning in 1 Samuel 8. This narrative thus conveys a radical relativization, subversion, and judgment of Israel's politics, which is a remarkable feat when you consider that these are Israel's sacred writings, and that such negative conclusions about royal power must have put the author at some risk. And so elsewhere, the psalmist warns us, do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. There's a tragic irony in the futility of politics that nevertheless solicits our absolute allegiance. The only place in the entire Bible where God laughs is at this inverse relationship between the pomposity of politics and its ultimate impotence. Psalm 2-4, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. <clears throat> Jesus said that the kingdom he inaugurated is not of this world. Pastor Greg Boyd notes that most human kingdoms and powers go to any lengths to exercise power over others, political, economic, military, cultural. Whereas the reign of God that Jesus taught and modeled flourishes by what he calls power under others, a radically countercultural mandate for an alternative ordering of human affairs. And this is exactly what Paul teaches in this week's epistle. We read in Ephesians 5:21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But submitting to one another is exactly what nations, governments, and political power cannot and must not do. Thus, Reinhold Niebuhr, America's most important theologian of the last century, famously insisted that we're stuck between the lust for power and the call of virtue. This moral ambiguity characterizes both individuals and especially nations. Niebuhr believed that while individuals can be moral, nations and societies are inevitably immoral. This meant that there was a tragic and inevitable conflict between the one and the many. And thus the title of Niebuhr's book, Moral Man and Immoral Society. Jesus didn't allow himself to be co-opted by any political party of his day and didn't engage in any explicit political action. From his birth when King Herod tried to murder him, until his death at the hands of Pilate, Jesus threatened the political powers, not because he sought to control what they controlled, but because he undercut its pretensions and claims to supremacy. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. Thus concludes Gary Wills, Jesus didn't acquiesce in silence before political power. He confronted it 
so that the program of Jesus' reign can be seen as a systematic anti-politics. Thus, the inevitable and tragic conflict to reject both the safety of silence and the pressures of partisanship. In April of 2004, Pastor Greg Boyd preached a controversial series of six sermons called The Cross and the Sword at his 5,000-member Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. As he explains in his book that grew out of these sermons, The Myth of a Christian Nation, How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church, 2006, in the months preceding the 2004 election, Boyd wanted to warn his congregation about nationalistic and political ideology, of reducing the gospel to any political point of view, of sincere but badly mistaken convictions like the belief that America is a Christian nation, or that believers should somehow take back the nation for God. No, Boyd preached, the path through politics is not the road to God. Many parishioners thanked Boyd for his boldness, but others were not so enamored. About a thousand people left the congregation. It would have been easier for Boyd to have remained silent or to have been partisan. The relationship between religion and politics is complex, controversial, divisive, ambiguous, and often full of compromise. And thus we're often told never to mix politics and religion. But that's precisely what the Old Testament story about King Solomon does. Boy didn't preach that believers should avoid politics or that Christian convictions have no political implications. As the story about Solomon demonstrates, there's a prophetic critique of political power that avoids both the safety of silence and partisan ideology. And for further reflection, contrast the relative claim to render to Caesar what is Caesar's with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. For books this week, I review a title called A Long, Bright Future, An Action Plan for a Lifetime of Happiness, Health, and Financial Security. The author is Laura Karstensen, New York Broadway Books, 2009, 318 pages. Whatever else your future holds, one thing is almost certain to be true. You will live much longer than your forebears. In the last hundred years in the United States, infant mortality has decreased by 90%, and maternal mortality by 99%. The average lifespan increased by 28 years. And so in the developed world today, average life expectancy is about 78 years, and old age has become the norm rather than the exception. I suspect that we all know a person who lived to be a hundred, 
like my wife's grandmother. So what to do with all those extra years? We shouldn't look at our last three to four decades as leftover years when we retire instead of work, says Karstensen. Nor should we succumb to the many myths about old age. She begins her book with five common misconceptions about getting old. That older people are more unhappy. That your biology is your destiny and there's nothing you can do about it. That we should retire as early as possible that old people consume too many limited resources, and that the individual, rather than society as a whole, determines how we fare in old age. Karstensen, who founded Stanford University's Center on Longevity, wants to bust these myths by helping us to rewrite our social scripts about old age. This requires us to think in new ways about almost everything. Money, work, marriage, family, friends, social security, Medicare, and so on. In her final chapter, Karstensen recommends a fourfold strategy to envision, design, diversify, and invest. I thought many of her suggestions were idealistic and overly general. And she admits that there's a distinct class divide between rich people who live longer in poor people who die sooner, and that the vast majority of people living in the two-thirds developing world are mired in systematic disadvantages that shorten their lives. These disparities make us question whether we live in a just society. But whatever you think about Karstensen's suggestions, if you are fortunate enough to be reading her book, you are likely to live a very long time and you do yourself a favor by thinking proactively about that in new and creative ways, instead of with fear and anxiety. Your last years, says Karstensen, can be your best and brightest years. <clears throat> and for film, I review a new movie called Ruby Sparks, 2012. Calvin wrote a bestseller novel as a high school dropout. But that was 10 years ago, and now he has writer's block. Nothing helps, and his closest friend is his dog. Until one day his psychotherapist tells him to write one single page. Calvin writes about a recurring dream of a girl named Ruby Sparks. This literary creation of the girl of his dreams then becomes a real person. Calvin discovers that as Ruby's author, he creates and controls her real life, like making her speak in French. At first, this works great. He can create the perfect girl of his dreams. But the dream turns nightmarish when he discovers that trying to write the scripts for another person's life, with the expectation that they will fit into your own narrative, is a distinctly bad idea. Genuine relationships flourish when each person is acknowledged as a free individual and accepted for just who they are, rather than who you want them to be. We can be one, even though we're not the same. 
This offbeat romantic comedy was written by Zoe Kazin and directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. The title, Ruby Sparks, a romantic comedy. And in keeping with the essay theme this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, 1865 to 1939. The title is called Politics. The poem begins with a quotation from Thomas Mann. In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms. Politics by William Butler Yeats. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has both read and thought, and maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again, <coughs> and held her in my arms. Politics by William Butler Yeats. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 19th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.